This is KMTT. Tuesday, Parshat HaShavua, will be delivered by Rav Alex Israel. Our Parsha this week, Parsha Pikudei, uh, ends Sefer Shemot on something of a crescendo. It is a high point of the Sefer, and let me try and explain what I mean. When we look at the Parsha, we see that we end up with a scene of Giloy Shechina, with divine revelation. We see here in the, in, in the Maftir of the Parsha, Perak Mem Pasuk Lamedalad, chapter 40, verse 34, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, The presence of God filled the Mishkan, Moshe couldn't even enter into the tent of meeting because God's cloud rested in the Mishkan or upon the Mishkan and God's presence filled the Mishkan. And it would appear that Moshe is unable to enter because God's presence is so manifest. This, as I say, is something of a, a crescendo in the Sefer, because we've just spent so long trying to build the Mishkan, we've taken a lot of time to try and construct this amazing um, sanctuary for God, and we wonder, and the big question is, whether God's presence will be within the camp. Um, is God going to, to reside amongst B'nai Israel? Uh, this, by, this question, by the way, uh, is, is exacerbated by what we read in last week's parsha, in parsha Kitisa, where in parsha Kitisa, in the wake of the Egel, in the wake of the golden calf, we saw an incredible scene in which God visibly separates Himself from the nation. God um, told Moshe to take his tent and pitch it outside the camp. This you will find. In Paraklamad Gimel, chapter 33, verse uh, 7 through to 11, Pasuk Zion to Yud Aleph. And it says that Moshe took his tent and he put it outside the camp and emphasizes, far away from the camp. He called it a tent of meeting and anybody who wanted to meet with God or seek God would go out to this tent, which the text stresses, which was outside the camp. After the sin of the golden calf, God does not want to be in the midst of his people and he makes a physical symbol of his separation from the nation and will only meet with Moshe, will only have a dialogue with Bnei Israel at a great distance from the encampment. So much so that we're told in the Psukim there in chapter 33 that when Moshe went out to the tent, everybody, all the people would stand at the entrance to their own tents and watch Moshe go into the distance to the tent of meeting. And when Moshe came there, the cloud signifying God's presence would descend to the opening of the, of, of the tent, of Moshe's tent, the Ohel Mo'ein. And everybody would see the cloud come down, standing at the entrance of Moshe's tent. And they would bow down at the entrance to their own tents. We have a sort of corollary, a sort of mirror image, a parallelism, where people are standing in their own tents watching Moshe's tents in the distance. 
and they realize that Moshe's tent beholds God, but their tent is devoid of God. What a joy then when we read the last lines of the parsha and we realize that God's promise of the Shachanti Betoch B'nai Israel, that I will dwell in proximity to B'nai Israel, that God will associate himself with us, this has come to fruition. Indeed, by Chasan on Etol Moed, we read at the end of the parsha that the cloud is now on the Ohel Moed, which is at the epicenter of the camp. Chapter 40 describes how Moshe sets up the Mishkan, he sets up the sanctuary, and now as the crowning glory, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God, appears in the form of a cloud, and his presence is so intense that even Moshe himself cannot enter the tent. In order to take this uh, image a little further, um, I'd like to dwell on certain comments of the Ramban, where the Ramban noted a parallelism between this image of the Mishkan here in chapter 40 and the image of Har Sinai in chapter 24. In Perak Haftalad, Moshe is going up to receive the Shnei Luchot Abrit. He's going up to receive the two tablets of stone. And there we read about how Moshe ascends the mountain, ascends Mount Sinai, and we're told then that God's, God's presence is like a consuming fire at the top of the mountain. But this is what it tells us when Moshe leaves the camp and ascends the mountain. Vayal Moshe lahar. Moshe ascends the top of the mountain. But now look, here we have the presence of cloud. Vayachasan on etahar. A cloud covers the mountain. Vayishkvod kvod Hashem al har Sinai. God's presence fills har Sinai. Now again, I'll read the Pesukim at the end of our Parsha, just to elaborate how the parallel is so, is so tight. There we had, uh, the cloud covered the mountain, and God's presence dwelt on Har Sinai. And here we have, God's, the cloud covers the Mishkan, the Spirit of God, the presence of God fills the Mishkan, exactly the same thing. But similarly here, what does it say in verse in chapter 24? Moshe has gone up the mountain, he wants to commune with God, but it says, For six days, Moshe stands and waits. Only on the seventh day he is admitted to the cloud, so that he can commune with God for 40 days and 40 nights. Interestingly enough, Sefer Shemot ends with Moshe still standing outside the, 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 the Mishkan, outside the sanctuary, and not being admitted. But if you turn over the page from Shemot, straight into Vayikra, we read the following, Vayikra el Moshe, Vayidaber Hashem, Elav me'ol mo'ed le'mor. And God called out to Moshe and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, etc. And many of the commentators here see this as a as a natural follow-on, a natural lead-in from Sefer Shemot to Sefer Vayikra, all the commentators don't understand the double introduction to Vayikra. Vayikra al Moshe, Vayidaber Hashem Elav. Why couldn't it just say Vayidaber Hashem al Moshe Leimor? But of course, if God is calling Moshe, He's calling Moshe because Moshe had not been allowed to be admitted to the sanctuary, and now He is being brought in. 
So this is the culmination of the Sefer. This is where Shemot um, comes to a crescendo, as I called it. And, and why is that? As we explained in our opening Shior to Shemot, some people see Shemot as simply the story of the Exodus, simply the story of how we went from slavery to freedom, but it is much more than that. Shemot is the notion, or is the is the drama, of how God ties his destiny to B'nai Israel. It is it tells the tale about how Kadosh Baruch Hu does redeem us from slavery, but the idea is that that we should become his nation, the Yitzhak Milevukim. As God unveils the plan at the snare at the burning bush, our freedom is meant to turn into service of God, and more than that, we are becoming God's people. We are becoming a Kadosh, a nation of priests and a holy people. And suddenly now, at the end of the Sefer, we feel the presence of God within us. The presence of God is evident amongst us. And this is a, a phenomenal moment where we realize that we are indeed God's people and there is a, a very, very deep, a very deep connection. So this is how Sefer Shemot ends with the very evident presence of God. And this indeed is the dedication ceremony or this is the revelation which follows the setting up of the Mishkan as I mentioned the Mishkan is described throughout the end of the Sefer its uh, establishment the actual putting up of the Mishkan takes place in chapter 40 and chapter 40 is dated it's given us a date it's the first of Nisan in the second year of the of the wilderness it's almost a year after we came out of Egypt the Mishkan is built and on the first of Nisan Moshe sets up the, 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 the Mishkan and uh, God appears to the people. Now this is, is fascinating because this um, revelation of God and this experience of God in the temple is described in many other books. And I think if we see the way that the Chanukata Mishkan, the dedication of the Mishkan is described in other books, we will see it as, as, as very, very different. And let me try and explain what I mean um, by looking at two other books, Vayikra and Devarim. Vayikra and Bamidbar, sorry. Vayikra and Bamidbar. Sefer Vayikra, um, particularly in the Parsha of the Tzav and Shemini, describe the Shivayim Miluim seven Miluim days, the seven days of inauguration of the Kohanim, followed by what is called the Yom Hashmini, the eighth day. This has already been legislated in Sefer Shemot, in Parshat Tetzave, where we knew we were meant to do the Shiva Yimei Miluim, the seven inaugural days. But there is a process where for seven days, the Kohanim undergo training, they're dressed every day, there are special sacrifices every day, and they're even told, you have to sit in the temple, live in the temple for seven whole days, a whole cycle, a whole weekly cycle. And uh, this all comes to a finale on the on the eighth day. On the eighth day, on the eighth day, um, there's, a, there's a different ceremony. And the reason why this is so special, and this is why Actually, uh, 
Moshe gathers the entire nation together for this spectacle. Because Moshe says to the people, Moshe, This is what you've got to do. And God will appear to you. Um, as I say, following this entire week, a cycle of, of, of temple service, Hashem reveals his presence to the nation on the, on the eighth day. And how does he reveal his presence? We see it at the end of Ayikra, uh, Peraktet. This is what it says. Um, all the sacri- sacrifices have been brought. Aharon raises his hands in the direction of the people by Varachem, Birchat Kohanim, he blesses them. By Yered he comes down from the altar where he has brought the Chatat and the Ola Shlamim. And Moshe and Aaron go into the temple, they go into the Ohal Moed, and they come out and they bless the people a second time by Yerak, Avod Hashem, Am. And the presence of God appears to the people. How does it appear to the people? Hashem. Fire comes out from God. And it consumes on the altar the burnt offering and all of the fats. All the people shouted. They shouted in joy and they fell on their faces. Um, this image of the dedication of the Mishkan is, is very different. You will notice that the major player here is, is Aharon and the Kohanim as they bring all of their korbanot. Even the place of revelation is different. It is not inside the covered section of the uh, Mishkan, but it is outside in the open air at the at the altar where the korbanot are brought. And God does not appear in, in, in cloud, but he appears in fire as he consumes the sacrifices. This is, again, a second moment of revelation which transpires within the context of of the dedication of the Mishkan. And this happens on what's called the eighth day. Now this is, this becomes a, a, a matter of discussion amongst many of the commentaries because the question is, are there two focal points of revelation? One opinion, followed by Rashi in the Ramban, is actually that the same day that Moshe experiences the cloud in the Mishkan is exactly the self-same day that the fire comes down from heaven to the altar to consume the sacrifices. In other words, there is one day of revelation, and that revelation might manifest itself in, in, in two forms, in cloud inside and in fire outside, but really there is only one day of revelation. The Ibn Ezra disagrees, and he says, Moshe set the Mishkan up on the first of Nisan, but then there were the seven preparatory days, and on the eighth day, God revealed himself once again. There was revelation in cloud on day one, and revelation in fire on day eight. Um, of course, there are advantages to each. One feels that even Ezra follows the timeline more accurately, but it is still puzzling why we need two, um, two moments of revelation, why God appears twice a week apart. And in that sense, Rashi and the Rambana, Nita, there's one, one incredible day where God reveals to the people. And this is a, a very complicated sugya, a very complicated topic, so I'm not going to go into all of them. But for now, I would like to simply relate to the fact that the Chanukata Mishkan, the dedication of the Mishkan, is described in these two books. 
in in entirely different ways. Um, it's God appears to to different people. In the case of Shemot, he appears to Moshe. In the case of Vayikra, he appears to Aharon, or appears to the entire nation, but primarily the primary actor is the Kohen Gadol, Aharon, and and his children, the Kohanim. The scene, the, 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 the scene of the crime, the place, is totally different. In the case of Shemot, it is inside the covered bit of the Mishkan, in the Kodesh, or the Kodesh Kodashim, that the cloud is manifest. Whereas, in the case of uh, Vayikra, God burns up the sacrifices outside on the altar. The act which instigates God's revelation is different. In Moshe, it is just setting up the Mishkan, setting up and anointing the Mishkan. In the case of Vayikra, it is actually the sacrifices. And of course, the, the mode of revelation is entirely different. In one case, it is cloud. Um, cloud being, how should I say it, somewhat soothing, wet, nourishing, life-giving. And uh, on the other hand, fire, burning, uh, intense. And uh, this is actually the same fire here, which seems to burn up Nadav and Abihu, as described at the beginning of chapter 10. So we're, we're a little perplexed as to these two moments of revelation and why we need two and how they, how they fit together. But I'm not finished yet. We still have to visit one third place. And that is uh, to look at Sefer Bamidbar. Sefer Bamidbar, in chapter 7, um, describes, once again, this self-same event, the Chanukat Mishkan, the dedication of the Mishkan. <clears throat> it's a full chapter in chapter 7. Many of us remember the laning because the, the Kriyat Torah repeats itself over and over and over. Right? You remember Korbano, Karat Kesef Achat, Shoshim Umeya Mishkalam, Izraqi Chad Kesef, Shivim Shekel B'Shekel HaKodesh, Shnehem Malayim, Solek B'Gulab HaShem Alemicha. This is the Kriyat HaTorah for Chanukah. What does it say there? Let's take a look at this uh, particular depiction in Bamidbar. It says, We're back to that self-same day when Moshe finished setting up the Mishkan. It would appear that the date is the 1st of Nisan. Exactly the date described at the end of Parashat Pikutei. Vayim Shachoto Moshe anointed the Mishkan by Kadesh and sanctified it by Kol Kelav Betamizbech by Kol Kelav Vayim Shechem Vekadesh Moshe sanctifies and anoints the entire structure. And there, who comes along? Who comes along is the Nisiei Israel, the princes of Israel. Rashi Beit Avotam. The heads of the houses and they come along and bring what is described by Avuet Korbanam Ifnei Hashem. They bring their Korban. Now, if it's a Korban, an offering or a sacrifice, we might expect them to actually kill these animals and uh, treat them like a sacrifice. Uh, kill the animal, put the blood on the on the altar and consume the meat on the altar. <coughs> this is actually not what they bring at all. They bring... Um, oxen, and they actually bring um, a whole bunch of wagons. Um, it says they bring six wagons, and they bring a whole host of oxen. And what's the purpose of all of this? That the when they walk through the wilderness, these um, wagons are there to actually carry the boards and the coverings of the mishkan, 
as they go through the wilderness. And this is strange because we're used to the word korban as meaning sacrifice, and here it's not a regular sacrifice. They, they're bringing actually wagons and oxen. What's even more interesting is when we look at their gift. Their gift is uh, not, again, not standard. Korbanot karat kesef achat. They bring a silver bowl. They bring a mizrak echad kesef, a uh, some sort of uh, container where you throw the blood. They bring kafachat. They bring spoons. Um, <laughs> along with that, I have to say they bring a sin offering and a burnt offering and a and a shlamim, a peace offering. These are standard, but uh, the Nasim bring unusual gifts. And what is the nature of this? And uh, maybe I will put it this way. We, we have... Uh, our Parashat Shavuot describes the dedication ceremony of the Mishkan, or the setting up of the Mishkan, but this is an event which is narrated in three different books, and one wonders why we need to narrate it in three different places. Why it needs to be repeated throughout the Torah, here, there, and everywhere, and what is the what is the point of all this? I'd like to actually begin by solving this problem by making a methodological point. Whenever we see the same event described in multiple places in Torah, we can deal with it in in a range of different ways. One way is to take all the different places and try and iron over all the all the creases to try and resolve all the differences and to try and uh, come to a situation where everything looks exactly the same. And uh, if we do that, so we will end up saying maybe that all of these things happen on exactly the same day. Uh, you could even maybe come up with a theory that the cloud was created by the fire on the on the on the Mizbeach, and really it is all describing a single event and there are no different dimensions. But that is not going to be our our approach at all. In fact, uh, our belief, or the belief that, that certainly that I have been educated in, is that if the Torah took pains to describe this event three times, then it is describing each from a different angle. And if it puts this same event in three different Sfarim, it is accentuating the nuances of each parsha. It is drawing on its unique emphasis because it wants to assess its place. It's clearly such a crucial and critical moment that it needs to be told in three different places. It needs to have three independent stories. It is telling three separate things. And this is critical for us to understand. And if that is true, then we have to uh, un- uh, we have to try and work at seeing what each place is about. So let's try and, and follow through with the evidence that we have and see how each matches each place. We've already dealt with Sefer Shemot. And I said that Shemot is all about God creating um, a relationship with B'nai Israel, adopting B'nai Israel as his people. And the most important thing to see at the end of the book is is God's God's presence residing amongst us, and maybe that's why it resides in a cloud, a cloud which is calm, which is uh, soothing. But I, I should probably mention one further point, which is that the key figure, of course, in Sefer Shemot, is is the leader par excellence, is Moshe Rabbeinu himself. Moshe Rabbeinu is the central figure in Sefer Shemot. 
He is the figure who we meet right at the beginning. He is the medium through which HaKadosh Baruch Hu enacts the plagues. He is then going to be the one who helps them through the Yom Suf. And he is going to be the same, self-same Moshe, who is the, is the conduit for the giving of the Torah. But it doesn't end there. Moshe Rabbeinu is the person who patches together the relationship between Am Yisrael and God when God threatens to kill and annihilate Am Yisrael in the wake of the golden calf. It is Moshe who argues on, on the behalf of the nation to God and insists that God forgive them. By the way, playing a sort of double game because at the same time Moshe is turning around to the people and insisting to the people that they need to do, they need to repent and they need to do tshuva and they need to come closer to God. So Moshe Rabbeinu is really the, the Shadchan. He is the key figure in helping that relationship along. And in that regard, um, we fully understand why Moshe, being the middleman, the ultimate middleman, is the central figure in the Hanukkah Mishkan from the perspective of Sefer Shemot. However, Vayikra is a very, very different book. Vayikra, is, its theme is, is Kedusha, is holiness, sanctity. And the role played by the Mishkan is, is totally different in Vayikra. In Vayikra, we're not interested, or we don't focus on the role of God residence in the Mishkan. In, in, in Sefer Vayikra, the Mishkan is primarily a place of bringing sacrifices, korbanot, that's what the whole first ten chapters do. And after that, the whole uh, role of the Mishkan is dominated by who can enter, who cannot enter, who is pure, who is impure. And of course, the central actor, Moshe, is not the central actor in Sefer Vayikra. The center stage is taken by the, the priests because the priests are there in order to engage in Avodasha Mishkan in the service. And therefore, when we describe the dedication of the Mishkan in Sefer Vayikra, what we're interested in is... How can our Avodasa Mishkan, how can our Korbanot, Korban from the word Hidkarev, to come close? How can our service of God induce HaKadosh uh, in, in, Baruch Hu responding? Or maybe I should say it differently. When we bring all of these uh, animal sacrifices, is God going to accept them with open arms? Is God going to receive them warmly in a spirit of acceptance? And it is that story which is more important to be told in Sefer Vayikra. If Vayikra is all about uh, having an ability to worship God through the Korbanot, then we want to see the way that the Mishkan is set up, not just as a place where God can be resident. God is not resident in the story of Vayikra. God's cloud does not um, rest within the Mishkan. But God comes, and his primary role is to come in fire, to eat up the sacrifices, and by this he is saying... I welcome your service, I welcome your approach, I welcome uh, the role of the Kohanim as the as the means whereby B'nai Israel can connect with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Maybe even the fire is a little frightening. The fire indicates that Hazar HaKarev Yumat, that if you get too close, you might be burnt. If you do the wrong thing, you will be burnt. As I mentioned before, at the same moment that the fire came out to burn up those sacrifices, the very next verse tells us that Nadav and Avihu, who broke the rules, were killed. And maybe this is exactly, um, matches many of the parashiyot in Sefer Vayikra, which say, if you are in, unclean, if you are impure, you 
are not allowed access to the temple and gives us all the rules of purity in order that we should understand that God is fire. God is, has to be taken very, very seriously um, and we need to watch it when we come close to the temple. We need to understand when we come close to the Mishkan we need to approach in the appropriate manner. And now I come to to Bamidbar. Sefer Bamidbar is a difficult sefer to pin down, and it contains many, many different strands. But if I have to look at Sefer Bamidbar, I would say that one theme of, of the book of uh, Bamidbar is is that it is written from the perspective of the camp itself. It begins with the census of the people in the camp, and we see a huge range of leaders, of lay leaders, of communal leaders in Sefer, in Sefer Bamidbar. If you recall, right at the opening of the Sefer, who does the count? Who, who enacts the census of the people? It is actually the princes of the tribes, the Nasim, and the Nasim appear multiple times within the book. They appear at the beginning in the census, they appear later with the Chanukah Tamishkan, they appear in the story of the uh, of the Muraglim, they appear at uh, the spies, they appear again in the division of the of the land, they appear all over the place. It's not only the, the, the Nasim, the princes. We don't see a lot of Kohanim in Sefer Bamidbar, but we do see Levim, Levites. And the whole idea of the Levites are they're sort of more of a they don't have a special uniform. They can't actually do the temple service. They are the backing group. They are the the schleppers. They are the porters of the Mishkan. They're special, but uh, they don't have the same krushat uh, the same sanctity as the Kohanim. They are the representatives of the people. They are civilians. They're civilians who are allowed to work in the in the in the Mishkan. We see other leaders too. We're going to meet, um, you know, Kalev and Yehoshua. We're going to meet Korach. We're going to meet Pinchas. We're going to meet the seventy elders in Sefer Bamidbar. Bamidbar. Uh, introduces us to a an incredible set of leaders throughout the book. And in that regard, that is its focus. Its focus is tribal leadership. Its focus is the camp, the administration. It is very much a book which comes from the perspective of the nation, the civilian side of things, the camp, the um, the people's fears, the people's worries. That's that's what's going on with Sefer Bamidbar. And therefore, maybe it is natural. After we have described the dedication of the temple by Moshe, we described the Mishkan set up by Moshe and anointed. That was a nice story in Sefer, Sefer uh, Shemot, where God appeared at the people, appeared to the people. It was also very interesting to see the role of the Kohanim in Vayikra. But in, suddenly in Bamidbar, we have to see a third perspective. And suddenly we see the people's representatives, the tribal leaders step forward and say, we also need to have a part in this, in this uh, foundational event. We need to have a part in this setting up the Mishkan. But again, what do they do? They're not like Moshe engaged in prophecy, engaged in dialogue with God. They're not like Haron who engages in sacrifice. They bring, they bring camp-like things. They bring secular objects. They bring wagons, they bring bowls, they bring spoons, because they are coming from the camp. Now, the one thing which might be missing from chapter 7, or which we haven't mentioned, is no explicit revelation. You might say, it's very nice that we had Moshe and Shemot, 
we had Haron and his sons in Vayikra, we happen to see him in Bamibar, and we understand the way they all function, but does God reveal himself in, in, in Bamibar? And the answer is he does. Right at the end of chapter 7, it says, When Moshe goes into the tent of meeting to speak with him, he hears God speaking to him from above the, the top of the Aron, the Kaporet. In other words, the response to the Nesim, the response to the princes, indeed, that God talks to the people. God talks to the people, and of course what he's doing is he's instructing them as to how they're meant to, to act. So what do we see in this in, in this in this thing we see the way that three Sfarim can describe the same event the same event in different ways in Sefer Bamidbar by the way and I forgot to mention this this is not a one moment event it's a 12 day event it's a 12 day ceremony that is we've never heard of before one prince every day one prince every day because every tribe needs to have its place as I said Bamidbar is a civilian book he needs to look at things from the people's perspective. So, we see that the dedication of the Mishkan is a landmark. It is a central, pivotal event in the life of Bnei Israel. And I think we can learn a lesson from this shiur. Um, sometimes we think that it is only holy people, great uh, rabbis, or I don't know, maybe prophets or whatever it is, who can have access to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Um, that we wait for, for those people over there who are very religious or those people who are very holy to have that special um, in, that special experience with God. But what, what we can learn from this possibly is that everybody can have access to the Kodesh. Everyone can have their relationship to God. Everybody has their entry point to the Mishkan. Moshe in his level, Aaron in his place, but the people also have their place in order to engage with with God as regards the dedication of the, the 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 Mishkan. God is also in the midst of the common people in the same way as he is reveals himself through the sacrifices. There are many, many avenues to the service of the Rubbana Shalom and it is up to us to find one. We've also learnt another thing about studying Qurash. And frequently when we see multiple phenomena of a similar thing the Chumash is not simply repeating itself. The Chumash has integrated uh, an event as important as the setting up of the Mishkan into three different Sfarim in order to teach us exactly this lesson so that we can understand how a simple single event can actually have ramification in many, many different layers. And the way that the Torah describes these layers is by repeating the event each time with different nuances, with different details, and with a different perspective. So here we find ourselves at the end of, of Sefer Shemot. We've had a good chance to learn the Sefer this year uh, because of uh, all the, all the uh, Parshiot being separated. And I look forward to you joining us in our continuation of our Parshat Shavua as we step into the world of Sefer Vayikra and uh, I look forward to continuing learning with you next week and beyond. Thank you very much. Shabbat Shalom.